Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope your holidays were wonderful. Mine were great. Um, I want to thank you guys for hanging in there. New Zealand, you are still hanging in there, but Australia has overcome you. You better get back in there with the listens. I know you absolutely do not want your arch rivals, Australia, to overtake you in that number two spot because that's what's happened. Australia is in the number two spot for listens. New Zealand, you need to come back in there. Get back in there. You've always been my number two listeners behind the U.S. And it will be sad. If Australia just comes out of nowhere and knocks you out that number two spot. But anyway, I love you all, no matter where you're listening from. I'm glad you guys had good holidays. I hope that your new year is great as well. To celebrate this new year coming up, we are going to have a live with a special guest. We're going to have Noob and Awesome from the Two Scoops XD podcast, our uh, YouTube channel. I have guested on that YouTube channel a couple times. I'm going to leave some links to the videos that I have done with them. I felt that it was only right that I return the favor and have them over here on the podcast. We are going to go live. It will be um, available in video form on my YouTube channel, which is Dumber Than a Sack of Hair. And we're going to do a Who Did It Dumber video. Uh, We are going to see if the same crime committed in both the U.S. and Scotland, and we're going to see who did it dumber, the United States or Scotland. So that is going to be on Sunday the 1st. Um, I will have links and times down um, for you guys if you are interested. If not, you'll be able to see the replay uh, both in audio form, wherever that you listen to Psycho Crime, and also you'll be able to see the video of the live over on the Dumber Than a Sack of Hair channel on YouTube. So that's just something special I wanted to give you guys. And if you guys enjoy it, I will have Noob and Awesome on more often to uh, go over some dumb crimes. So um, this week, depending on how you look at it, you may consider the crime this week as a dumb crime. Uh, Emotional abuse is what some people will think it stems from. This is something that's actually multi-layered. The man involved definitely is a narcissist. If the children involved were a little little younger, well, a lot younger, probably about 20 years younger, they're adults, so they're not really children, this would profile dramatically different than it does. But the crux of this, and what I think a lot of people couldn't understand, is why his wife helped him. Um, I think it was at the core of her court case. Many people just refused to believe that this was a case of emotional abuse. Now, emotional abuse is a pattern of behavior in which the perpetrator insults, humiliates, and generally instills fear in an individual in order to control them. The individual's reality may become distorted as they internalize the abuse as their own fault. An isolated occurrence doesn't necessarily qualify as emotional abuse, but a pattern of behavior that creates fear and control does. Such mistreatment can occur in a range of interpersonal contexts, such as a parental relationship, a romantic relationship, or even a professional relationship. People who suffer emotional abuse can experience short-term difficulties, such as confusion, fear, difficulty concentrating, low confidence, as well as nightmares, body aches, and racing heartbeat. Long-term repercussions can include anxiety, insomnia, and social withdrawal. What are some of the warning signs of emotional abuse? Emotional abuse centers around control, manipulation, isolation, and demeaning or threatening behavior. Signs of this abuse can include, but aren't limited to, monitoring and controlling a person's behavior, such as who they spend time with or how they spend their time or money, threatening a person's safety, property, or loved ones, isolating a person from their family, friends, and acquaintances. This is usually the first thing 
than an emotional abuser will do. Demeaning, shaming, or humiliating a person. Extreme jealousy, accusations, and paranoia. Delivering constant criticism. Regular ridicule or teasing. Making acceptance or care conditional on a person's choices. Refusing to allow a person to spend time alone. That is a big one. Uh, emotional abusers don't want you to get time alone because if you get time alone, you get time to think and you get time to realize how the things they're doing truly make you feel. Thwarting a person's professional or personal goals. This is another big one. If you have career goals and they can stop you from reaching your ambitions, it just makes it easier for them to make you believe that you don't have worth or that you have less worth than you thought. And this goes hand in hand with instilling self-doubt and worthlessness. And they can undermine your professional goals or even your personal goals. It's much, much easier for them to instill that self-doubt. Gaslighting, AKA making a person question their competence in even their basic perceptions of what's happening around them. What are the subtle signs of emotional abuse? Sometimes emotional abuse doesn't involve overt threats or vigilant monitoring. More subtle signs that emotional abuse may be occurring in an important relationship to you include regularly judging a person's perspective without trying to understand it, relying on blame rather than improvement, regarding the other person as constantly inferior, frequently being sarcastic to them, and telling the other person how to feel in an attempt to be helpful. I think we all know this person, and this is a person that is regularly called the pick me. You know, whenever you'll say something, they'll be like, but do you though? Do you really like that? Or you'll say, I think I need to lose a couple pounds. They'll be like, but really though? Do you? Do you need to lose a couple? Or do you need to lose 10? Like, that's what they call the pick me. So that person who's trying to undermine you by being helpful, they're not really being helpful, they're just being hurtful. Or that person who's truthful, quote unquote, but instead they're just being cruel. Perpetrators of emotional abuse consistently criticize, shame, and humiliate in order to gain control and power within a relationship. They may yell, call them names, or level baseless accusations against them. They may act jealous, possessive, or monitor the person's whereabouts and communication by checking their phones. An emotional abuser may gaslight their victim into believing that their unhappiness is their own fault. And they often seek to isolate them from friends and family to prevent the person from getting reality checks or broader perspectives on their relationship. And another tactic that they use quite often, if there is an outside influence, a friend um, that they can't isolate you from, a parent, is they'll convince you that the person just doesn't like them or especially if it's a friend they're just jealous of our relationship it's because they're single it's because they're broken and they're damaged and they can't find what we have is a big one um your mother's just mad because you know she's divorced and you're finally happy that's a big one is that it's just because they're jealous of what we have abusers are often extremely skilled manipulators so those suffering emotional abuse often don't recognize what is being done to them. The tactics that they use may lead the victim to believe that they are to blame for the problems within a relationship. These patterns occur consistently and often relent only when the victim understands the manipulative behavior and threatens to leave or actually ends the relationship. Gaslighting constitutes a special form of emotional abuse. By manipulating the victim to doubt his or her own sense of reality, continually saying things like, mm, that's not how it happened, or you're crazy. I don't understand how you could possibly believe that. The gaslighter asserts control over the relationship, 
leading the victim to rely on the perpetrator for their sense of reality. Gaslighting can instill confusion, self-doubt, anxiety, and depression. Abusers deny their harmful patterns of behavior and blame their victims. They tend to be possessive, hypersensitive, and have a strong need for control, which motivates them to wield power within the relationship. Abusive tendencies may stem from deep insecurities or a mental health condition, such as a cluster B personality disorder, like antisocial disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. Emotional abuse and physical abuse can sometimes co-occur, but not always. Emotional abuse, however, often precedes physical violence, which only begins after emotional assault tactics fail to control a person's behavior which means take emotional abuse as a warning sign that physical abuse could follow, but won't necessarily. That doesn't mean stay so that you can continue to be emotionally abused and congratulate yourself that you found someone who will only emotionally abuse you and never put their hands on you. It means get out. It's still a massive red flag factory. It means get out because you are don't want to upgrade to a worse kind of abuse and you don't want to be in a situation where you're being abused in more than one way. Psychological abuse can sometimes be just as damaging or even more damaging than physical violence. While physical abuse is occasional and cyclic, emotional abuse is constant. Violence tends to be perceived as the offender failing whereas victims are more likely to internalize their emotional abuse as their own personal failings. Research suggests that over 50% of adults have experienced emotional abuse at some point in their lifetime, although the concept is difficult to reliably measure. Emotional abuse is designated as an adverse childhood experience, one experienced by 11% of children according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. This is important because we have something in the United States called the ACEs survey. This is something that catalogs adverse childhood experiences and how they negatively impact not just your emotional health, but your physical health. Many children who have been given the ACEs survey, they score high enough to show that the negative childhood impacts of things such as emotional abuse, physical abuse, growing up around domestic violence can as definitively affecting their physical health beyond a shadow of a doubt. I can also leave a link for the ACEs survey if any of you are interested in doing it, or I'll also leave a link to the TED talk about it. I use it with my patients all the time. Victims of emotional abuse are often worn down so that they cannot see the harmful dynamics clearly. They come to believe that the relationship challenges are their own fault. They may spend time ruminating and bargaining, considering how they can adapt their behavior or avoid confrontation. Victims may struggle with problems of self-esteem as well as anxiety and depression. Survivors of emotional abuse or domestic violence often remain tethered to the relationship much longer than outsiders can ever begin to understand. But there are many reasons why living can be so difficult. Constant accusations and harassment can wear down the victim and lead to distorted thoughts, such as believing that they deserve it or that emotional abuse isn't real abuse, so no one will take them seriously. Fear, damaged self-worth, concern for their children or their family, financial constraints, and other factors can lead victims to stay within an abusive relationship far longer than they should. John Darwin was born on the 14th of August, 1950, in Hartlepool, County Durham. He attended St. Francis Xavier's Grammar School and De La Salle College in Salford, Lancashire, where he studied biology and chemistry. On the 22nd of December, 1973, he married Anne Stevenson in Blackhall. Darwin then taught science and math at Darwin's side for 18 years before leaving. He later became a prison officer at HM Prison 
Darwin and his wife, a doctor's receptionist, also ran a business renting bedsets in County Durham with 12 separate houses. John was a man whose life to this point had been driven by a need for control and a relentless desire to make money. He was once described by his aunt as one of those who was trying to get rich way too quick. Despite having his first car and the deposit for his and Anne's first home paid for by his family, John readily bought into the myth of himself as a self-made man. Disillusioned with his teaching job, he enlisted his two young sons in a stream of off-the-track money-making schemes, ranging from (laughs) breeding African snails for local restaurants to sell as escargot, to painting gnomes to sell at swap meets. According to Anne's memoir, John described Anne's job as piddly. (laughs) That's just awful. It was attempting to develop a property portfolio to support his family that would ultimately be his undoing. Relying heavily on what he called creative accounting, He amassed a total of 14 properties while struggling to turn a profit. His desire to constantly expand his property empire meant regular moves, leaving Anne isolated from her one close friend from school and treated more like a student than a partner. Through his teacher training, he had learned how to control disruptive students, and that's pretty much how he made me feel, Anne recalled in her memoir. Darwin was last seen paddling out to sea in his kayak on the 21st of March, 2002, at Seton Carew. Later, the same day, he was reported as missing after failing to report to work. A large-scale sea search took place during which 62 square miles, or 160 kilometers, of coastline were searched. There was no sign of him. Though a double-ended paddle was retrieved from the sea near Seton Carew the following day. Later, on the 22nd of March, the wreckage of Darwin's kayak was found. The North Sea was unusually calm and rescuers were extremely puzzled how, da- how his kayak could have gotten into trouble during such conditions. During the years that Darwin was presumed dead, he lived for some time in a bedset next door to his family's home. He then secretly moved back in with his wife, Anne, in February of 2003. Suspicions were aroused when initial calls were made from the Metropolitan Police to the Cleveland Police, the force that John's 2002 disappearance had first been reported to. Months previously, Cleveland's Economic Crime Unit had received a tip-off that John might not be dead. There had been reports of odd behavior from his wife Anne, a timid woman whose neighbors believed that while John was still around, wouldn't even go across the street to the shops by herself. First, a colleague from her former job as a receptionist for a doctor claimed to have overheard Anne taking hushed calls from a man that she was convinced was her husband. Then, after his life insurance paid out to the tune of $250,000, a tenant of the block said that he recognized Darwin and asked him, aren't you supposed to be dead? To which he said, don't tell anyone. He later stated that he didn't come forward and tell the police because he just didn't want to get involved. In 2004, The Darwins decided to look into moving abroad, thinking about Cyprus. John Darwin applied for and obtained a passport using the false name John Jones, but he used his real home address. That's insane. I'm going to apply for a fake passport. I'm supposed to be dead, but I'm going to use my real home address. That's absolutely, that's narcissism for you. I don't think I'm going to get caught. So I'm gonna do little things just to see if you're gonna catch on to who I am and what happened. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous. In November 2004, the couple visited Cyprus to investigate buying property there. In May of 2005, an angler named Matt Audie claimed to have met Darwin, who was going under the name John Williams at a lake near Penzance, Cornwall. 
When back at home, Darren is reported to have spent most of his time on the internet. This new identity of his allowed the couple some sunny Mediterranean retreats, but trapped in an ultimately toxic relationship, John began searching for another escape. That escape came in the form of Kelly Steele, a married American woman. She told him about the cheap price of land in her home state of Kansas and became his new fixation. Aware of the flirtatious nature of John's conversations with Steele, Anne snapped at him. Fine then, go, find someone else. I don't care, she's welcome to you. Let her deal with having a dead man hang around the house all the time. When they argued about the new plan, she became increasingly and increasingly upset, which was uncharacteristic for her. She normally was quiet and reserved. John took the outburst as an invitation. Like I said, she was normally quiet and reserved. Soon afterwards, he booked a night, a two week long trip to the Midwest of the United States. And within minutes of arriving at their home, at her home, Kelly Steele's, John began to undress in full view of her and her family. Remember, this woman is married. Before being rapidly ejected, yeah, I, yeah, I'd rapidly eject him too if he just walked in my house and took his clothes off. Wow, okay, narcissism. It'll do that. Hoping to ensure that their partnership was strictly business, Steele agreed to go in on a $50,000 joint purchase of land with an attached farmhouse before his return. His sexual advances rebuffed and unhappy with the lack of immediate return on his investment, John returned to the United Kingdom and resorted to sending aggressive and threatening emails to Steele from his bedset across the Atlantic. The, what did he think was gonna happen? This is what is flooring me. The fact that this man just thought he was gonna show up in the US to a married woman's house where her children and her husband are and just take off his clothes and she was just gonna fall into his lap. Like, that's absolutely ridiculous. By that November, Darwin was back in the UK and he then flew from Newcastle to Gibraltar and then traveled to El Porto de Santa Maria to look into a 45,000 pound, 42 foot catamaran that he was considering buying from boat dealer Robert Hopkins. Just no care in the world. I'm just gonna fly around the world, not even try and hide and pretend like I'm dead. Like I'm just living my best life while my wife is back there worried that she's going to get caught and go to prison. Like I have no concerns in the world. Anne, at this point, quit her job and traveled to Panama in July of 2006 before permanently relocating there a year later. While there, she posted in emails to contacts back home of cleaning her amazing Panama City penthouse in a bikini and of plans to buy a large plot of jungle. But it remained to be seen whether they would find anything about this to be true or if this was just jealous speculation from people back home. However, in March of 2007, the couple did return to Panama and they formed a company called Jaguar Properties. This was in order to buy a two-bedroom apartment in El Dorado for 50,000 pounds. The bedset house next to the family home was sold under the name of Darwin's son, Mark. The home had been transferred to him in 2006. The proceeds from the sale were then transferred to Panama. This is money laundering, guys. This is money laundering. Wow. I'm, I wonder if they know that this is money laundering. I think maybe he knows, but she probably does not know that this is money laundering. And this is blatant. Like, they're not even trying to hide it. This is, wow. Yeah, money laundering, big time. Not even trying to hide it. And getting their son involved. Mm. The following month, Anne returned to the UK to sell their home. Wow. I wouldn't have done that. Like, even... Like, and I get that she's, she is emotionally abused. She's battered down. You know, she's doing this because she thinks that she has nothing else. You know, he's all she's got. But I feel like somewhere deep inside of her, she has to know, like, you know, he already came 
back and he moved in with her he forced her to let him move in she's hiding him in the house like he's in their property like she has to know somewhere deep down that if she sells the house she's gonna have nothing like there's gonna be no way for her to control him there's gonna be nothing for her to come back to like there has to be something somewhere that's like telling her not to sell the house because there'll be nothing left at that point but she sells the home while he stays in panama in 2007 the couple purchased a 200,000 dollars tropical estate in the village of escobal colon panama near the panama canal no i'm not going to try and do the amazing uh accent and say everything properly because i'm still i just began to speak properly with these veneers so i'll butcher things even worse with the intention of building a hotel from where canoeing holidays could be run in a later interview published in elizabeth greenwood's book about people who have faked their deaths he states that the canoe rental aspect of the purchase was a story fabricated by the media playing on the romanticism of his fake death that he and Anne visited Panama again, but this time they stayed for only six weeks. Following a change in Panama's visa laws, Darwin emailed Anne on the 14th of June in 2007 to notify her that their identities would have to be verified by UK police in order for them to receive the now required Panamanian investors visas. Knowing that his John Jones alias would never pass this level of scrutiny, Darwin decided to just give up, return to the United Kingdom under his real name, and fake amnesia. Now this is the point where you have to understand that everything just kind of fell down around them. Like first of all, he's convinced it's going to be fine. Like he's telling her, I'm going to come back and just fake amnesia, it's good. She on the other hand is panicking, she's absolutely losing her mind. This is the moment that she knows it's not going to be okay. It was never going to be okay. And clearly he never cared about me. He never cared about what could happen to me. At this point, um, she reports to telling him multiple times, if you come back, I'm going to prison. If you come back, no matter what happens, I'm going to jail. If you come back, no matter what, I'm getting arrested. And he keeps telling her, no, no one will know. I'm faking amnesia. She even reports telling him, amnesia does not work like it does on TV. She is correct. What they show on TV is not how amnesia works. I have had more than one patient with amnesia. There's different types of amnesia. There's different things that cause amnesia, um, whether it is from head trauma, uh, from overdoses, and the way it's often depicted in T, like it's depicted in different ways, but it's always not depicted correctly. I always love when someone wakes up and after 15 minutes, the doctor is like, you have short-term retrograde amnesia. <laughs> How do you know that in 15? You cannot possibly know that in 15 minutes. It takes a while. It takes more than one visit of a doctor talking to you, of running tests on your memory. They, they ask correlation questions. Uh, trying to find out if current cultural things mean anything to you. Like they break it down into eras and they ask questions about certain cultural things, certain historical things that happen. And they ask what it means to you. And like, if you have memory of that time frame, then you're going to have the right answer. But if you're answering, they can also tell if you're faking it based on the kind of answers or the way that you answer. Another thing that does not happen that happens constantly in TV and movies with depictions of amnesia is they ask a question trying to gauge the level of amnesia and the person says, I don't remember. You don't know if you don't remember because you don't remember. So you wouldn't say to them, I don't remember. Like that it's the worst <laughs> it's the worst thing and it happens every time they depict amnesia in tv or movies so there wouldn't like if you ask them a pointed question like uh, like a very big 
thing that is part of amnesia test now, like a big question they ask is, what does 9-11 mean to you? If you have no memory of that time frame or around that time frame, your response is going to be, if you're from the United States, your response is going to be, you mean 911? Like that's what, you know, it's going to be something like that, you know, so you're not going to correlate it with a terrorist attack because you don't remember there being a terrorist attack. So like when they show these kind of tests on TV and movies, they'll be like, what did you do two weeks ago? I don't remember. No, you would never ask them a question like that because that's not how you gauge memory. It's so easy to fake that. When you're like, what did you do two weeks ago? I don't I can just look at you and be like, I don't remember. People use it as an excuse. Do you know how so many of my patients, when they don't want to answer questions, just look at me and say, I don't remember. Like, that's an excuse. That's, that's not, you know, so it's so unrealistic. They never depict it properly. Um, when we talk about short-term memory, short-term memory could be anything from you not remembering, you know, one day to you not being able to remember one year. One year is a very short-term period of time. When we're talking about long-term memory, that could be you not remembering your childhood due to trauma or you not remembering, you know, just a, a 10 year stretch of time. But it's always, they always say things like, they don't remember anything before meeting you. How, how do you know the exact day in which they started remembering that you can't? You can't quantify amnesia in memory. You can give an estimated time frame around which you can say, well, it seems like the memories that, you know, they start remembering around this time period, but and it takes a long time and it's difficult to quantify the, there is no exact point. I'm sorry to break it to you, but people's brains do not work like computers. There is no, there, there are no points at which you can restart it or that you can go back. There's no restore points for your brain. Okay, that's not how your memories work. So you can never find out the exact, the very much exact point in which people are remembering things. So when you, whenever somebody can tell you the exact point from which they remember stuff and the exact point, it's bullshit. They can give you an estimated timeline. They can be like, well, I remember stuff from around this time period. I remember stuff. That is really how amnesia works. There's time frames, but not exact points because our brains and our memories don't work like that. Like our memories, don't come that way. There's no restore points. There's no exact points. So I always get infuriated when I watch TV shows or movies and they're dealing with amnesia because it is always so incorrect. So the idea that he thinks he's just going to walk into this police station and be like, I have amnesia. And they're going to be like, oh, okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. We give you all kinds of life insurance because you had amnesia. No, no. They're immediately going to know you're full of shit. <laughs> like 100% and they will have no sympathy for you. None. So despite the fact that they had already started an investigation because they were suspicious that he was alive, um, people had been making calls, like I said before, um, and had sold all their properties so she had nothing to go back to uh was absolutely terrified she was going to get arrested and so when she went back um she had to express surprise joy and elation at the return of her missing husband but despite this like i said there was an investigation there was a coroner's inquest into his supposed death which was authorized by David Blunkett, who was the home secretary at the time. There was an investigation into the 150,000 pound coastal rescue mission that had gone on for days after his reported disappearance. Neither the Met or the Cleveland police were any closer to understanding what had happened, how he was found dead. And so they started questioning him in the manner I described trying to see if he really had amnesia. 
the initial questioning suggested that he wasn't going to help them because, like I said, they asked questions like, what does 9-11 mean to you? His response was 20. It's not how someone with amnesia would respond because he recognizes they're trying to trick him. He recognizes they're trying to get him to answer a question about a period in time. So rather, he can't say, I don't know. He can't say, I don't remember, because that would show he clearly does remember because he's saying, I don't remember. So instead he's giving numerical answers, which does not make sense as well. Then they said, what does seven seven mean to you? He said 14. Once again, medical examinations recorded into his current symptoms do not match those of a person with amnesia. So this is what I'm talking about. When you fake amnesia, they have very specific questions that they ask you to try and gauge how severe your loss of memory is. And when you try and fake it, they can tell because your symptoms and the way that you answer the questions do not match those of an amnesia sufferer. This is not something you can fake. As much as they try and show you in TV and movies, you can't, you can't. You cannot fake amnesia. Darwin's cover story unraveled after the Daily Mirror published a photo of both Darwin's taken in Panama in 2006. The photograph had been discovered when a member of the public searched for the words John, Anne, and Panama in Google Images. Jesus. <laughs> this, they're bad at this. They're very, very bad at this. The photo had been featured on the website movetopanama.com and was brought to the attention of the Daily Mirror and the Cleveland Police. Anne reportedly confirmed that the photograph was of John saying, yes, that's him. My sons will never forgive me. Like she shows remorse. Like she's, she knows her sons are going to hate her. She shows remorse. She's terrified at the prospect of jail. The fact that she has begged him multiple times not to go through with certain aspects. At one point in her book, she even discusses in the beginning, asking him not to do it, asking him why he did it. Um, and he tells her point blank, like their children are gone. They're out of the house. It's not like they had children to support. He basically tells her, that you know they've gotten into some trouble with the properties and she's like didn't sell them and he tells her point blank he bought bad properties and they don't have the money to fix them up and no one will buy them the way they are and the only thing they can do at this point is file for bankruptcy but he won't and she's like i don't understand why not and he's like my reputation can't handle that She's like, what are you, what? Look, who are you that your reputation, what reputation? Dude, look, I could file for bankruptcy tomorrow and no one would care, including my creditors. It's not all of that. Like he really had such an inflated sense of ego that he thought like all the neighbors would just like shun him because he filed for bankruptcy when the reality is pretty much nobody would know if he told them like you would have to tell them for them to find out so he pretty much convinced Anne that the only thing that they could do was fake his death because it would just destroy his reputation and he would never be able to make a livable income again like and when she didn't really want to do it and then it came to a point where she said that she felt like she couldn't and she was even willing to take the consequences. That was when he would start in and he would be like, where are you gonna go? You know, what are you gonna do? Who would have you? No one would have you before me. It's just me, you know? And, and then he would go in on her age. You're old, you're ugly. No one's gonna take you. I would just be like, maybe I don't want anybody. You know, maybe I've had enough for a lifetime. Maybe I just want to be alone, you know, but once again, she's been abused. She has been indoctrinated into believing she's worthless and that he's the only person who will have her. He's the only person who believes she has any worth and she needs to repay that. And she needs to repay that by helping him. And that's where that devotion 
and spending all these years, you know, putting this plot through, you know, getting the insurance money, letting, you know, the, and a lot of people think it's nonsensical. A lot of people think, why? How could you possibly help this man fake his death? How could you possibly, you know, help him buy properties and invest? She really didn't feel like she had a choice. She felt like this is it. This is all she deserves and that's it. And it wasn't until he decided to come back that she realized he does not give a shit about me. He doesn't care if I go to prison. He just doesn't care. This was never about having a, a great reputation so he could provide it for me. This was about him doing what he wants for himself. It's sad that facing jail time is what made that recognition hit, but it's really what happens with a lot of emotional abuse cases is something extreme needs to happen many times. So, like I said, she expressed remorse several times throughout this, um, especially, like I said, at the end, it was her who basically, you know, let them know that, yeah. <laughs> the police then arrested her husband at his son's house. He was charged with obtaining life insurance money by deception and making untrue statements to obtain a passport and was also arrested the following day after she returned to the United Kingdom and she was detained with on allegations of fraud. She appeared in court on the 11th of December to face two charges of fraud for obtaining 25,000 and 137,000 by deception. She remained in custody until the 14th of December. Darwin appeared at Hartlepool Magistrates Court on the 10th of December, where he was, he also remained in custody until the 14th of December. On the 14th of December, Anne and John appeared in separately, appeared separately before the Magistrates Court, and they were both remanded into custody to appear again on the 11th of January, so they spent Christmas in jail that year. On the 9th of January, John and Anne returned to the Magistrates Court to face further charges of deception. John faced additional charges of obtaining 137,000, the same charges that Anne was already facing, in addition to existing life insurance charges against both of them. Um, John, uh, for 25,000 in John's separate charge of obtaining a passport by deception, they were then both charged together for obtaining more money from a teacher's pension scheme to separate amounts of 25,000 and 58,000, as well for obtaining money from the Department of Work and Pensions. Jesus, he had a lot of pensions. Why did he need to, f did they not kick in until he died? Separate amounts of 2,000 and 2,200. They were remanded in custody once more to appear in court again. On the 18th of January, they each appeared separately at the Magistrates Court by video link and remanded until the 15th of February when they faced committal to the Crown. On 13th of March, John Darwin admitted seven charges of obtaining cash by deception and passport offenses the Leeds Crown Court. He denied nine charges of using criminal property and these charges were ordered to lie on file. Anne denied six charges of deception and nine charges of using criminal property. On the 23rd of July in 2008, John and Ann Darwin were both convicted of fraud. John Darwin faced an additional charge relating to his fake passport and was sentenced to six years and three months in prison. Ann, who was described by the police as a compulsive liar, was sentenced to six years and six months. Both appealed against their sentences, and on the 27th of March, 2009, both appeals were denied by the Court of Appeals. Anne was imprisoned at HM Prison, Low Newton. The Crown Prosecution Service said that all profits from the callous and calculated fraud committed by the couple would be confiscated. John was released on probation in January of 2011, and Anne was released in March in 2011. On the 14th of February, 2012, the Crown Prosecution Services announced that the entire $501,000 in life insurance and pension payouts received by Dan Ann had been recovered, partly from the sale of two properties in Panama. Um, they said that it's important that fraudsters see that not only will we prosecute them wherever possible, but we will also make every effort to retrieve their ill-gotten gains to return them 
to those that they have defrauded. In April of 2014, it was reported that John Darwin had repaid just 121 pounds from the 679,000 the judge had ordered him to reap. See, Anne, Anne was on it. She's like, sell it. Do what you got to do. John's like, see, that's what I said. I said, Anne shows remorse. Anne understands what she did was wrong. She's not going to do it again. You know, she gets it. She, I, I owe society. I have to pay for what I did. John, on the other hand, is like, Psh, I ain't paying for nothing. However, he claims that all of this is because the assets were in Anne's name. By July 2015, the pair no longer had any assets and had paid a total of $541,762. She had already paid, oh, but he still didn't pay, he only had, only 41,762 more were paid in total because she already paid 500,000. So he was ordered to pay an additional 679,000. That means he got away with only paying 41,000 of his 679,000. Yeah, that's not right. Anne did what she needed to do and he didn't do barely shit. So once again, no remorse. Obviously they have since divorced. John is now living in Southeast Asia <laughs> with a much younger wife who is somewhat ironically named Mercy, and somehow he still receives a pension from the United Kingdom. Uh, it was just two years after being released that John, however, did break the terms of his parole trying to see a Ukrainian woman he met on a mail order bride site. Uh, he told her that hundreds of women wanted to meet him and that he received around 250 messages a day but she never wanted to see him again after their first date. But in 2015, he married a Filipino woman, Mercy Dada, otherwise known as Mercy, who is 23 years younger than him and has her own business um, inside a giant indoor market. And on the other hand, 69 regularly embarks on long solitary walks through the North Yorkshire Moors and Cleveland Hills where she lives a quiet life by herself in a small one-bedroom bungalow in a pretty village in North Yorkshire. So that is the insane story of a man who decided that it would be much easier and better for him to fake his own death than to just file for bankruptcy. So next week, we are coming back to Massachusetts here we're going to look at an absolutely insane story of a little girl by the name of Justina. Now, somehow this case of this little girl who ended up in a hospital, the hospital said that this was Munchausen by proxy. The parents said that she had a degenerative disorder. And somehow in the course of this, um, Anonymous got involved and decided that putting a denial of service attack on a children's hospital, stopping children from receiving medical care was what was needed in order to figure out who was correct. Is it Munchausen by proxy? Are the parents making the child sick by over medicalizing her? Is the child actually sick or is it a third option? One that maybe nobody ever thought of before or is it a fourth option? Could maybe both sides be right? Tune in next time when we look into the case of Justina, anonymous, several doctors, a long drawn out civil suit, and a very, very, very shocking resolution. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.